you know, I was just talking about my list of, you know, the must rewatch, like most rewatchable. I don't know. I'm going to have to come up with a title for that list of episodes. This one's definitely on the list as well. Although that's not surprising. I have a feeling Sarek is pretty high up on most Star Trek fans' list for TNG. What's funny, though, is some people seem to think that because it's got the connection to the original series, some people think that because it's, you know, they think it's a good episode. That'd be me, by the way. And some people think so because it's one of the best portrayals of Vulcans we've had for most of Star Trek. I mean, obviously there are other good Vulcans across Star Trek, but this episode pretty much nails it, not just with, you know, Mark Leonard doing an amazing job of Sarek, but also the gentleman who plays Sakath, or Sakath, Sakath? They they phrase they change how they pronounce it every now and again, so I'm just gonna go with Sakariko. No? Okay. <laughs> but what I find interesting, going back to that TUS thing, Roddenberry, uh, I've actually talked about this before, insisted that TOS and TNG not really connect. Like he didn't want any overt connections between the two. In fact, it was the whole thing with uh McCoy being back in Encounter at Fallpoint was kind of a hiccup or a glitch, you know, a send-off kind of a thing. I already talked about that. Switching over to a more full-time actual acknowledgement of continuity was something that hadn't really been done up until this point. Now, that's actually strange to think of in hindsight, and yet, ironically, perfectly logical when you consider the financial and creative side of things. Now, there's two aspects of this. There's the executive side and there's the Roddenberry side. Now, we know with total certainty that both sides were against referencing or acknowledging TOS too much when it came to TNG. We don't 100% sure know why. There are conflicting reports about this, and as always, what was exactly going on in the mind of Roddenberry, especially in his later years, which we're officially in at this point, uh, is more of a matter of debate than a matter of fact. However, it's just my opinion. This is pure speculation, of course that Roddenberry always wanted to kind of mentally distance himself a little bit from TOS and adhere himself more to what he thought was more true core central Star Trek. What I mean by that is, for anybody who's studied the making of, of TOS, you'll know that Roddenberry was constantly fighting everyone on that show, fighting the writers, fighting the executives, fighting the producers, fighting to get the show reinitialized after it was canceled. Just It was this constant struggle for him, right? And I point that out because I often feel, and again, pure speculation, that Roddenberry had reached a point where he felt like TOS wasn't actually his baby anymore. It was the thing he compromised on. Now, part of why I think this is because there's several indications that when season one was starting of TNG, that it was like, now I can do it the right way. You know, I'm the person in charge. I'm the one with creative control. Make of that what you will. But that's my personal take on it. That's why I think he was against that. Now, as far as the executives, again, I only have speculation. But my take on it is, again, creative and financial. From a creative perspective, you don't want to dilute your brand by leaning too heavily on another brand. Uh, there's simply too many problems with doing that, uh, especially since that other brand, at this point in history, when Season 3 of TNG was coming out, wasn't really readily available. There were still tapes circulating the networks, but it's not like there was a DVD box set of TOS, if you follow my meaning, because DVDs hadn't been invented yet. But you get my point. So trying to push something that they didn't really have the ability to showcase 
would just kind of, they were afraid that it was going to alienate, this is all speculation, I speculate they were afraid it was going to alienate fans and make, and dilute the brand a bit more by being like, oh, look at this thing. Plus, as I've pointed out many times, continuity was a weird mistress at this point in era, even though some people disagree with me on that, uh, they are welcome to because I'm still right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, there are plenty of aspects of television that was both pro-continuity and anti-continuity in this era, and unfortunately Star Trek was pretty anti-continuity. Which brings me to my second point, the financial side of things. They can't sell the original series anymore, at least at this, at this point in history, not in the same way they could sell TNG. There were a lot of things they could do with TNG financially. There were only a couple of things they could do financially with TOS. And, well, they didn't want to affect that or influence that, make, make demand for a product that wasn't really readily available. The only real TOS sales figures they were getting was from the movies, which were coming out at this point in history. And I remind you that this is right about when Star Trek V was being made, so make of that what you will. Now, all that's purely my speculation. What we do know for definitive fact is that it was a massive hassle to get in a singular reference to Spock, and to get Sarek in in general. Originally, this script was actually written twice. Seriously. Once about Sarek, which is the episode we got, and once about Vulcan Ambassador 36 who we don't even have a name for because he was just a new character. <laughs> Which I find hysterical in its own right. But the interesting thing about this episode is this is another one of those many hands in the pot situation. Now, I've said this so many times. Historically speaking, especially when it comes to television, when you have a lot of creative minds all getting involved in the writing, one of two things happens. It goes really well or it, gets really, it goes really badly. And really, there's not a lot of in-between on that. Now, this happened to be one of those really wells. We had a good, solid original script, which had a good screen, uh, drafting and screen work, and it had several talented writers working on it, including uh, Iris Stephen Bear, Ronald D. Moore, and Melissa Snodgrass. All three of those had a hand in doing some writing work on the script, on the script for this episode. So you can kind of see how it ended up working out, but it's just kind of funny because this could have been just another not particularly memorable episode of TNG. Oh yeah, by the way, quick quick aside, sorry, I mentioned Ira Stephen Bear. He has gone on record as saying that he had to fight for literally days with the writers, writer staff and the executives in order to get a single reference to Spock into this episode. He, Picard says his name once, in basically a throwaway kind of a nature, mostly talking about Perrin. Yeah. Anyways, I also... Uh, what in the world? Oh, yeah. So, so I guess that's it, so, as far as the making of. I do, of course, want to give huge, huge credit to Mark Leonard, to Patrick Stewart. But I also want to acknowledge someone else in this episode. Now, I know this is going to sound like a weird thing to bring out here. But this episode was the very first appearance of the person who... There it is. Joyce Robinson. Sorry, I didn't have the name up. Now, Joyce Robinson is the name of the actress. She plays Ensign Gates. Now, I know, you can always tell certain levels, certain tiers of Star Trek fans, because I can just predict right now, and I'd love to hear which one you are here. Like, people, some people are going to be like, who? Some people are going to go to Google and be like, oh, yeah, I remember her. And some people will already know who I'm talking about. Ensign Gates is a massively recurring character. She's in 46 episodes of TNG. Now, I mentioned this, she, she barely has any lines, but that's not really the point. 
Something that I really enjoy about Babylon 5 is they kept reusing the same actors for the same types of roles, which, well, it's, it's, that's good television as far as I'm concerned. They don't get the kind of credit or praise or glory or money that the mainline actors do, but at the same time, having that kind of recurring, repeating background element really helps to add to the world flavor immersiveness and believability of a television show, in my opinion. This is something that I, if I was involved with a television show, would be very strong on. I would insist on trying to get as many of the same actors back to say, play the same roles back as often as I could. Even if they're just in the background poking at a screen, the audience will, consciously or subconsciously, notice that that's the same person that's been there. I bet a lot of you, if you go look up, look up right now, go to uh, Memory Alpha or just Google, you know, Star Trek TNG Ensign Gates. There's a picture of her right at the top of the screen. I don't have it right now because I'm looking at her episode list. But um, I bet money that most of you will be like, oh, yeah, I recognize her, at least a little bit, because she was in so many episodes and such a recurring... You see my point, right? It adds... It adds flavor. It's another brush stroke. I talk so often about brush strokes. And this is another brush stroke, and I feel like more television needs to do that. Anyways. So, she's awesome. Sarek is interesting in his own right, because Sarek is exactly... Like, they do a good job of showcasing the life of a man who lives a long time in an organization that really isn't all that old. Like, the Federation is a couple of centuries old at this point in history. Which, I mean... There are countries in real life that are that, that are that young, but there aren't that many of them. You know what I mean? How long has Italy been around, for God's sakes? Just to name one example, right? Greece. So my point being, you can kind of see how it's a unique circumstance. It's one of the things we can do with fiction when we have a long-lived species or a long-lived member of a long-lived species who has been involved in so many aspects of this. More or less, literally, Sarek has been one of the crafting elements one of the master builders of the Federation, of the entire Federation. And there's something kind of awesome about that. I also like the idea that he's been working with the Ligarans for the last, I think it's 93 years, off and on. Just, I, I can't imagine that he's been devoting all his time to this because, well, because I understand how long 93 years is. But also, I, I do like the idea that this has been an ongoing project for him, that he's been slowly, you know, he'll contact them and there's a pause of, months or weeks and then finally oh maybe we can do this thing and you know and then there's another few days of devoting his life to this until he goes back to his other duties that kind of a thing i like that idea that this has been something that's been i don't want to call it a pet project but more like something that really matters to sarah personally you know which brings me to one probably the only flaw i have in the episode the lagarans are never explained why they matter I know that sounds so horrible to say, but everyone looks at this as if it's some horrible loss if they have to postpone this. And they never really explain why, other than the Ligarans are picky. That's all they say. There's actually a line Picard says, almost an offhand line, that the, the value of a treaty with the Ligarans would be incalculable. Why? Now, again, there's pl plenty of reasons why this could be true. But those reasons are never even hinted at. Never mind discussed or analyzed. And I just found myself thinking that it felt weird. I get that it's not the focus of the episode. I do get that. Because really, let's be honest, the Lagarans don't matter. Sarek matters. The reason everyone cares so much about this mission is not the fact that the Lagarans matter to the Federation. It's that they matter to Sarek. 
Having said that, if I was to rewrite this episode, I would have adjusted the dialogue between Picard and Riker at the beginning and make it more clear that the Lergarans are just another race, a very obstinate race, a very xenophobic, xenophobic race that's been a pet project of one of our most venerated and honored, respected heroes of the Federation ever. And therefore, nobody really cares about the Lagarans actually entering the Federation because of the Lagarans. They care about it for Sarek. Make sense? That's how I would have done that. I want to give uh, extra special praise to Mark Leonard. I'll be giving even more praise to him la later. The man's awesome. But he has a lot of excellent facial acting. He's, he's probably the go-to definitive Vulcan, as far as actor goes. But the way he holds himself is very reserved and calm, but he also does something interesting in that his face is mostly motionless, but as a consequence, every time he moves his facial structure at all, it's, it, it, it's more noticeable. It's hard to explain, but I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Me, my face is all over the place all the time because I'm a very expressive person, but he's kind of the inverse of that. He is very expressive with very little. For Sarek, the way he just raises a single eyebrow, given the fact that normally his face is basically just a stone wall, that one eyebrow raise actually means a lot more because of the way he does it. So he's, he's very good at it. Sir, uh, like I said, Mark Leonard absolutely nails it. I also like the idea, Picard flat out mentions how much he was gobstopped to meet uh, Sarek back in the day when he was a lieutenant. And I like that because it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, this is not, again, I hate to repeat myself, this is a hero of the Federation who, in addendum to that, is someone who obviously uh, Picard himself has a great deal of respect and admiration for. And unlike some heroes in real life and in fiction, basically all of this is earned, right? I like that idea and how much Picard obviously wanted to chat with him, talk with him, share with him. I understand that personally. Once in my life, I met a gentleman, uh, Scott Kurtz. He's the guy behind PvP Online, if you're aware of that. And I had the great joy of actually being able to meet that gentleman. Now, he's not exactly at the same level of Sarek of Vulcan, but there was still something really awesome about meeting someone who you look up to, who was influential in your life in a relatively minor but nevertheless significant way. And being able to just say thank you. Like, I, I couldn't bring myself to say anything. I couldn't bring myself to talk about anything because I was just like, I, I don't want to waste his time. Lord knows I know just how much of an insignificant spec I am on the Internet. But I got to shake his hand, and that was satisfying. So I kind of understand that desire to be able to meet someone, talk with them, interact with them, you know? Do you know how much I would give to be able to just sit down and chat with Nobuo Umatsu? for example, to be able to say, wow, you have had such an influence on my life. Your musical passion is so powerful and so awesome. And just to chat with him. I lick his boots a little. Then get on with actually discussing. You know, you know what I mean, right? I imagine a lot of you understand what I mean by this. So if I lived in Star Trek, I guarantee you, depending on the era that I got beamed to, I would want to go meet Sarek. That would be... That'll be a treat. So, then they have the crisis of the week. Now, this is actually funny. Because it's actually probably one of the better constructed crises of the week across TNG. Because it's not, really. Again, the crew isn't really in danger of tearing each other apart. It's just bursts of anger. And anyone will tell you a burst of anger is a dangerous thing, but ultimately a short-term thing. Everyone involved, basically, as soon as they were pulled out of it, 
were pulled out of it, just like real-life anger bursts happen. And again, in real life human physiology, our brains quite literally do not work as well when we are angry. So it makes sense that they would be able to do these kind of irrational things and then be like, oh god, what was I doing? Now I bring that up because, again, it's not about the anger or the threat of the, to the crew any more than it's about the Legarans. The threat to the crew is, is a calculable and, indeed, once they figure out what's causing it, a preventable problem. No, once again, it is all about the title character. I do want to point out one thing really quick, though. First of all, it's funny how immediately, obviously out of character they are. Again, credit to the writers. The very first line Wesley says, and keep in mind, this is shortly after another scene with Wesley and Jordy where the two were talking positively and friendly with each other, is, Is that it? He slurs it in just an interesting way, and I'll give credit to uh, Will Wheaton and the way he presents this, because you could just feel the disrespect there. Is that it? Can I go now? And then they start ask, escalating into far more obvious argumentative anger. Even Riker has to basically slam down on both of them. But one of the most interesting things I find personally is that so much of the emotion is anger. That all of the emotional bleed-off that all the crew members are feeling is anger. Resentment, bitterness, frustration, rage, fury. I should clarify, uh, the way I use those words, rage is unfocused and fury is focused. You know, you're furious at a target or, and your rage at everything or nothing. Anyways, and that makes so much sense, doesn't it? Think about all the things that have pissed you off in your life. The grudges you still hold, the, the things that you never really got to deal with. Now, picture that over the lifetime of two centuries, Right? I mean, you can kind of understand how that would build up over time. It's probably one of the better examples of a long-lived species and showing the consequences of that long life. Strangely enough, Star Trek does that pretty well here. I like that. So there's a lot of subtle little tidbits in the episode, which is funny given how overt the episode is, where, you know, Ensign DeMoto's on report for insubordination and that whole, is that it thing I just mentioned? Um... There's also the single tear during the concert. A lot of little subtle moments, which is funny because later on there's a brawl, a full-on brawl where they break the tables and everything in 10 forward. I like the build-up. <laughs> it's a nice touch, and if you're paying attention, you notice the things uh, quite often. There's a lot of good stuff about the, the Vulcan interaction. Uh, Perrin herself flat-out says, some people think Vulcans are cold, but they're not. They are logical. And I have to admit, that's, the, that's something I would love to tell just about any Vulcan actor going forward. Because in my opinion, most actors and actresses who play Vulcans across all of Star Trek portray them as either cold or boring. It is a legitimately difficult thing <coughs> excuse me, to portray a Vulcan. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying that it's the kind of thing that should be done very precisely. As a director or a mainliner or a writer, I would be very particular about who I would get to play as Vulcans because of that exact reason. Funnily enough, this is even brought up over in Voyager in the episode Muse, if you remember. Because remember, and so many people forget this, Vulcans have feelings, very powerful feelings, very, very powerful emotions. We see bits of that in this very episode. But a Vulcan is not emotionless, a Vulcan is controlled. A Vulcan is someone who uses him or herself very precisely, as a precise tool, with the basis of logical thought as the method by which they proceed forward in their life. Now, I point that out because logic itself, it, oftentimes some writers like to say logic is a thing, but, it, but logic is not a thing. 
being logical is a thing, but there's no such concept as logic. Logic is not a tangible, fully defined thing. Logical thinking is the process by which you take inputs and outputs and you process information and try to deduce the most likely outcome and then the most likely beneficial outcome based on the evidence at hand. That's logical thinking. But that's not logic. There's no defined logic, right? There is being logical. But of course, even being logical is something that can break. DS9 showed that pretty well, actually, in my opinion, in Season 7, but we'll get there much, much later. So we see a lot of this in this episode, and probably one of my favorite examples is during the concert. I want you to picture something for a moment. Hear me out. How many of you have a song, just has to be one, you might have several, that is significant to you for some reason? Maybe it's played at significant parts in your life. Maybe you have deliberately played it at certain parts in your life. And as a consequence, you have an attachment of memories to this specific music. Sarek has gone on record multiple times at saying that he is a big fan of Mozart and this particular portrayal in general. Also, just as a quick aside, even though Data is only in this episode very briefly, he absolutely nails his interaction with the Vulcans. And so Data says, which presentation would you like? This presentation. Okay. I want you to picture how many times in his life Sarek has heard that music. How many emotions he was suppressing and feeling while he was listening to that music. How many times in his life he is being reminded of as that song is playing. Just picture that for a minute. That tear says all of that and more. And it's wonderfully understated. Which is funny because it's incredibly overt at the same time. The episode makes it really, really clear as Troy's like, huh? And Picard's like, huh? And the uh, Sakath is like, huh? And then they're all like, okay, we gotta leave. And yet at the same time, at the center of all of this attention, and this really good music, is Mark Leonard, who is a, who is a rock. He's cut from stone. But then he turns to his wife, and there's just this moment, and I swear this might be me reading too much into it, but the camera's really zoomed in on his face. I think I actually saw this. There's this moment of, like, confusion. Uncertainty. What, what's happening? She reaches up, brushes away the tear, takes his hand, and they lead them out. Just because this, this shouldn't be happening. Right? Very, no, very nice stuff. Very nice stuff. So then Crusher slaps Wesley. And this is the first moment where they finally start escalating to the something's wrong. I, I know I've complained about this for, before. I just want to mention this really quickly, how funny it is to me. How people can act completely out of character in Star Trek. And, it, and sometimes they don't notice at all. At least they notice in this episode. But it always takes a while to be like... I mean, Sarek himself flat out says, you realize that there's a history of unknown phenomena in these kind of situations. And Picard's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking as someone who was possessed by an alien once and then beamed out into an energy cloud. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Anyways. <clears throat> so then we get to the 10 forward brawl. <laughs> I don't have much to add to that one other than how amusing it is. I'll, I'll never forget the, sh the shot of... Michael Dorn just kind of rocking back and forth. He, his arms are way further out, of course, but he's, he's just holding these two people like... Rawr, rawr. And I just pictured the director being like, okay, so Worf here, Dorn here, is going to be grabbing you and holding you, and you're supposed to be basically trying to struggle to get away, but don't tear the uniform. Those things are expensive. Okay. <laughs> 
the brilliance of the writing here is actually very well done because it touches on something that is extremely human in a very science fiction way. One of the things I like best is when science fiction uses science fiction in its writing. I know that sounds like such a strange thing. But what I mean by that is this kind of situation couldn't really exist in real life if this was a mundane story, in other words. But having these, these projected thoughts is something that can happen here. But more to the point, having a Vulcan is something we can have in science fiction. If this was a human being, if Sarek was a human being and somehow telepathic, let's just move past it. It doesn't even have to be telepathic, really. That's really only the, the vehicle by which they find out what's wrong. Because as I said, it's all about Sarek. So if this was just a human ambassador, this would still be powerful. This would still be emotional, human, and tragic. All of that would still be the same. Because we in real life have these kind of problems as human beings. We're kind of working on that in real life right now. But even right now, my great-grandmother had Alzheimer's. And I remember her not remembering me. Keeping in mind, I had a strong relationship with her. She and I were quite close. She taught me how to play the piano. And that's the kind of thing we deal with as people, as humans, real-life people. Age is the kind of thing that can and does destroy us in many different ways. Disease is just one of them. So this could have been just an elderly ambassador who was human, and it still would have worked basically just as well. But adding that extra layer, making it a Vulcan, is, is kind of brilliant, especially since it's impacting others. Because I said earlier, it's not really about, you know, it's not a threat of the weak. It's about Sarek. I keep saying that, but it keeps being true. Because what is one of the most critical elements of Vulcan mentality? And I know what you're all going to say, and I'm going to say it here, and a lot of you are going to disagree with me. Pride. One of the most critical elements of Vulcan mentality is pride. I am above emotion. If I have an emotional outburst, that is a source of shame for me. If others see that outburst, that is even more ashamed. Why do you think that despite being one of the founding members of the Federation... Even up into Voyager's era, there is astonishingly little medical data on the Ponfar because of pride, because of species-wide pride. That's not an insult. It actually, in my opinion, helps to flesh out the Vulcans substantially. And so we have an elderly, respected individual who has been working on this project for nine decades I've only known two people in my entire life older than that. And he is someone who is honored and respected. You know, like I said, even if he was human, all of this is still valid. Then you add the fact that he's Vulcan, and he hates to even be in a position where he could be losing that control. Just to himself. Just in private. In a, in a closed environment. In a, in a closed sphere. This would still bother Sarek. And then it's affecting his mission, which matters to him. And then it's affecting his wife and his aides. And, the, and his professional comrades, which bothers him. And then it's affecting the entire crew. It's like, if you could just picture some really embarrassing thing about yourself, being on a goddamn billboard that's just blaring neon signs wherever you go. Picture that. And picture how much that would affect a Vulcan. You see? And therein you feel the real power of this episode. The severity and extent of the shame of it. 
Because, goddamn, of course this bothers Sarek. It bothers everyone around him. Perrin has a line later where she says that, I, you know, we, we didn't deliberately deceive you. We just allowed ourselves to believe it wasn't an issue. And I don't buy that. I believe that they fully knew and fully deceived, but not out of ill intent, because they knew Sarek. And they knew, just like I know, just like you know, how much this would bother him. It's easy to understand. It's a very human thing to understand, trying to keep this kind of a difficult, unpleasant truth from someone you respect, care about, and let's be honest, love. Even Sakath. Sakath? God damn it. It says Sakath. I have, I have my writing. I always write little uh, spoilers or uh, cheat sheet for, for pronunciation to make sure I say it right. Even Sakath is, is, is not immune to this. Why would he be? He has, he has emotions, too. He certainly has pride. But what I like most about Sakath, and I want to talk about him again very quickly, is that Picard goes to Perrin, tries to talk her into the situation. She stonewalls. So he immediately calls on Data, and he just sicks Data on him. <laughs> and it's funny, but it's a great scene. It's so short, but again, Data reacts with the Vulcans perfectly. Because Data doesn't try to coerce him. Not really. Data just presents the facts. This is this. What is your decision? Which is most logical for you, Ambassador? And he just crushes him, logically speaking. He really does. But what I also love, and again, huge credit to the gentleman who played Sakath, he doesn't try to lie. In fact, he doesn't lie at all. He instead looks at a different aspect of the situation and insists that that is more important than the aspect that Data is saying is important. It is basically a form of a misdirect. He does a good job of it. Rocco Sisto is apparently the gentleman who played Sakath, so props, Rocco, even though you'll never hear this. So, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I actually forgot one step. I apologize, I'm doing this kind of out of order because I'm getting a little passionate myself. It's a great episode, what do you want from me? Perrin Stonewalls. Sakath, logic, tries to logic his way out of the situation. What I find most interesting is the, uh, the assistant dude, uh, Mendrosen. He flat out threatens Picard's career. He just straight up politicians his way through the situation. I get the strong impression that he is there because the diplomatic corps would be forever embarrassed if one of their best was seen to have such an embarrassing disease. And that's just unacceptable for the, for the appearance of the Federation as a whole and the diplomatic corps in personal. That's just my take on him. But I digress. So then Picard has to do something that I've had to do in my life. He has to destroy the pride and dignity of someone he cares about and who has his respect. Not out of malevolence. No, no, there's no malice here. There's no anger, there's no anything. It's just, this is reality. And he has to confront someone with reality. From about tw the 28 minute mark to the 33 minute and 30 second mark, it's about five and a half minutes of amazingness. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's some of the best scenes in Star Trek, as far as I'm concerned. Up there in the top hundred, easily. Because it's just Patrick Stewart and Mark Leonard acting off of each other. And I've said so many times, some of the best television comes from when you put two talented actors in a room, you point the camera at them. 
We've seen this over in Babylon 5 as well. How many of the best scenes in Babylon 5 came from Malari and Jakar? There's some other nice subtle touches. I mentioned subtle touches. Do me a favor and watch that scene again. Like I said, 28-minute mark, okay? Early on, Sakath comes in, and he's right behind Sarek. Now, this is brilliant, and definite credit to Les Landau, because I'm pretty sure this feels like his style of directing, and he directed this episode. Um, Sakath is just staring at the back of Sarek's head, just fixated on it, and you can almost see the tension in how taut he is as he's staring at him. And every time Sarek slips a little bit, and lets a little bit of anger in his tone, you see Sakath visibly twitch, just physically react to that. It's a brilliant little touch, and i got to be honest, I didn't notice that until I watched this again on the DVD. I noticed this before the Blu-ray, but still, it's a great little little detail there. So Sarek says, it's unwise, but it's necessary. And then Sarek... Oh, there's so much good I could say about this scene. Sarek himself cannot logically argue. Because of two reasons. First of all, he consistently loses control. As he is trying to make his logical arguments, he is losing control in the action of doing so, which defeats his own argument. But the other reason he fails is because logic is about using facts. As I said, logical thinking. I defined that earlier. Logical deduction. But you have to determine what is considered fact in order to do that, you know. Like, you know, my hands exist is something I could use to logically deduce, you know, how my hands should function, for example. But the thing that Sarek uses as his only fact, the only fact he has for his logical arguments is that he is Sarek, a Vulcan, and cannot be doing this. That he is not illogical, that he is not emotional, and he's not losing control. And that is his fact. But that's not a fact, first and foremost. But second of all, even if it was true, it's still not a fact. It is a conclusion. It is, the, it is the preface for a second argument, not the initial argument. And so even his attempt to logic his way through the situation fails at every level. He actually is making a legitimate fallacy in his arguments, in addition to the fact that he's losing control while doing so. And in that we get so much of just how much this is breaking him down. And Leonard, God, he nails it. Picard just gets harder and harder. You can just see the steel growing over his eyes as he confronts him with this hard truth. And Leonard, Mark Leonard, just slowly unravels. Like you could picture a, a ball of twine, and then some of the twine starts to get loose, and then a lot of the twine starts to get loose, and now it's not even a ball anymore. Now it's just yarn, yarn everywhere. That's the way he portrays it. He does it so well. So then they talk about the mind meld, the solution here. The only logical solution. I, I don't actually have much else to say about the rest of this episode, believe it or not, because the rest of the episode just kind of goes through its paces. We never even see the Lagarans, but again, it was never about them. I like the fact that Picard is the logical choice. For years, I've never heard anyone argue that, and I've heard everyone talk about that as if it's just, duh. Because it is. Because the Picard we have had established by this point in history, even if you, you're new to the series, season one to basically the end of season three, Picard, yeah, of course he's the logical choice. Of course he is. But I guess that's why I like that. It shows how much the show has grown. 
that we had reached the point by the end of season three where a character can be posited as the only logical choice for something and the audience just goes with it. Not because the episode tells us to, but because we agree, because the character has been established. It helps to show some of the investment the show has built up by this point in time. That's, that's all. I, I just wanted to comment on that really quick. He mentions the dangers of the mind meld. Obviously, there are some side effects of this mind meld. We'll be seeing some of this in the future uh, in Starship Mine, I believe, and, of course, in Unification. But a lot of people have argued we also see side effects of this in All Good Things with... Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Aramotic Syndrome, the, the brain defect that Picard in, in the alternate future generates, and that in the alternate present has signs of. It has been argued that that is the ultimate and major consequence of this mind melt, that it has effectively damaged Picard's brain in a very subtle and very under-the-surface level. I suppose we'll see if that's actually true in the new Picard show, which, as of my recording this, we know nothing about other than that it's the Picard show and it's happening 20 years after the end of Nemesis. It'd be interesting if they acknowledge this at all in, in, in the continuity of it. Anywho, so Leonard, he plays Sarek. He just straight up is Sarek. And the only interesting thing about that is he consistently refers to Riker as number one. I like that. It's a nice touch. And again, it kind of shows how even though he is Sarek, there's so much of Picard reinforcing him that it, it comes across as something just automatic. It's not like Sarek is thinking, oh, that's number one. It's more like, number one, just immediate connection. And of course, of course, Stuart nails it. I, I don't even know what else to add to the fact that Stuart is just dealing with a lifetime of suppression and regret and anger. And we get Spock reference, woo. I also like how Crusher stays with him. It's a nice little touch there. Because of all the other people in the galaxy, who else would you want there more when you're going through that kind of thing, if you are Picard? What I also love about that scene is it says a lot about Sarek, overtly, but without being said by Sarek. Just all of that emotion pouring and chugging and burning out through Picard's eyes, through Picard's mouth. It's a great scene. So then, it's successful. Sarek has his one final adventure. And we will never see him again except in Unification. And technically in Star Trek VI. I'll be discussing more of the fallout of this when we get to Unification, because it will be immediately relevant in that. For now, I just leave you with what is basically an excellent episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed, because Lord knows I did. I'll see you next time, guys.